When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, don't be calling Jimmy Carter a redneck. That's not your word. That's our word, you limey git. Yes. The following podcast contains... But swearing and using dirty words is not one of my vices. I don't use foul language, and I don't like to hear anyone else use it either. Explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. When you didn't just let Billy run your peanut farm when you came president, what the hell were you thinking? I'm your host, Dave Bledsoe, and this is episode number 351, Jimmy Carter, Heartlust and Rabbits edition of the show, where we talk about that time Jimmy Carter was almost attacked by a rabbit and, you know, the rest of his presidency. Stay tuned. The What the Hell We Thinking podcast is brought to you by Peanuts, the hypoallergenic, gluten-free, non-GMO, vegan-friendly alternative to the peanut. In a world where peanut allergies just suddenly appeared out of nowhere and ran rampant through the population, it is more important than ever to think of the children with a peanut alternative. That's where Peanuts comes in. Peanuts are made out of all natural products that may or may not be wood pulp but are guaranteed to keep your little Chaz Zimothy's throat from swelling shut just because he's in the same room as an actual peanut. With none of the allergens and none of the taste, you can serve peanuts just like peanuts. And the spread of I can't believe it's not peanut butter or little bite-sized nuggets suitable for candy, cookies, or snacking right out of the bag. Peanuts. When you're worried about killing your kids' classmates, choose peanuts. Good evening and welcome to number 10 in the CBS radio series, Ask President Carter. A continuing experiment in presidential communication with the American people. Our next call is Peter Elton of Westbrook, Oregon, who I am told is 17 years of age. Hello? Hello? Hello, Hello, Peter. Is this the president? Yes, it is. Do you have a question for the president? Uh, I, uh, I took some acid. (laughs) <laughs> I'm uh, afraid to leave my apartment and I can't wear any clothes and the ceiling is dripping and uh, I uh... well thank you very much for calling sir no, please no, just uh... a minute Walter this guy's in trouble I think I better try to talk him down Peter yeah <laughs> Peter what did the acid look like um they were these little orange pills were they barrel shaped uh yes okay right you did some orange sunshine Peter <laughs> Very good of you to know about this, sir. How long ago did you take it, Peter? Uh, I don't know. I can't read my watch. All right, Peter, now just listen. Everything's going to be fine. You're, you're very high right now. You'll probably be that way for about five more hours. Try taking some um, vitamin B complex, uh-huh. vitamin C complex. If you have a beer, go ahead and drink it. Okay. Just remember, you're a living organism on this planet, and you're very safe. You've just taken a heavy drug. Now right. just relax, stay inside, and listen to some music, okay? Yeah. Do, you, do you have any Almond Brothers? <laughs> Jimmy? It sure is, Peter. You know, I'm against drug use myself, but I'm not going to lay that on you right now. Just mellow out the best you can, okay? Okay. Okay. Well done, Mr. President. Bravo. 
I would like to tell you that I've got a deep and abiding love for the humble peanut, being a child of the South, that I had whiled away many a languid afternoons plopping peanuts in my RC Cola. Is that like a thing you do? Not me personally, but rest assured there are people, all of whom were born in the South, that put peanuts in their sodas. I had it once. It was different. Smell different. Taste different. In reality, I had the same relationship with a humble peanut as pretty much everyone else does. It goes well smushed up and smeared alongside jelly on bread, and of course it is fucking fantastic in a goddamn Reese's cup. Two great tastes that taste great together. Reese's peanut butter cups, real milk chocolate, delicious peanut butter. Reese's peanut butter cups. And Reese's crunchy peanut butter cups topped with chopped peanuts. Quick aside, that commercial? Who the hell just walks down the street eating peanut butter straight from the goddamn jar? How fucking high do you have to be to tool around the town with a spoon jammed in a jar, Jeff? Sorry, that's that's just always bothered me. Growing up in the South, you see, the peanut is a big deal. Indeed, it forms roughly a third of your black history curriculum when you're in school. You had Rosa Parks not giving up her seat on the bus, Martin Luther King getting shot, and George Washington Carver doing shit with peanuts. Is that all? Is that all you want to know? Is that all? Actually, being in the 70s, they snuck a lot of stuff about slavery in your curriculum as well. Just nothing that said slavery was bad. So, you know, it was probably better if we stuck to the peanuts. The reason I bring up peanuts is, of course, our topic this week is none other than the humble peanut farmer, James Earl Carter Jr., who was so much more than a humble peanut farmer, and in hindsight, not nearly as bad a president as history remembers him. I find that hard to believe. Well, I'm not saying he was FDR. What I am saying is he did a lot more good stuff than most people remember. He was dealt a bad hand from the start, and worst of all... He was a kind, decent, and honorable man in a job where being a kind, decent, and honorable man is the last thing you want to do if you want to be considered successful in said job. So sit back, smoke a doob, or drop some acid, open up your jar of Jif, dig in with your spoon, and let's talk about the man from Plains, Georgia. I mentioned back in episode 337 that Jimmy Carter was the first president I personally identified with. Meaning he was an alcoholic. What? No, no, Jimmy wasn't a big boozer, and, and neither was I at seven. Jesus, what kind of childhood do you people think I had? I mean, I didn't even start drinking until I was at least 13. Your parents must be so proud. They're not. As I said, Jimmy appealed to me because he talked like me, he was from kind of close to where I was born, and he had a brother that was just like all my favorite uncles. I felt like a new Jimmy, which is why it seems super bizarre that he was president in the first place. America thought then, as they pretty much do now, that if you talk with a southern accent, you must be, you know. Are you some kind of moron? Jimmy was anything but a moron, and the Carter family was anything but poor dirt farmers. The family had been in America since 1635, and they'd been cotton planters for generations. That means... Exactly what you think it means being cotton planters in Georgia. Jimmy's great-grandfather owned nearly 30 slaves and over 5,000 acres of a Georgia plantation until, you know, General Sherman rolled through and fixed that little issue. His dad, James Sr., ran the Plains Georgia General Store and, and bought up local farmland during the Depression, creating the family peanut business, which I admit in hindsight doesn't look great. But this allowed Jimmy to pursue his dream of attending the Naval Academy. 
never understand what the infatuation dudes raised on farms have with being in the Navy. Jimmy started college in Georgia and was accepted to Annapolis in 1943 and graduated 60th out of 820 in 1946, just barely missing service during World War II. After two years, Jimmy decided tooling around on the surface of the ocean was boring, and he applied for submarine duty. Now, submariners are not normal Navy crew. Submariners are not, in fact, normal human beings. Jeez, you are racist. What? No, no, no. have you ever... What I mean is submariners voluntarily sink a perfectly good ship and then spend weeks or months in a metal tube underwater that contains a nuclear reactor. This is not the behavior of a normal human being. In Jimmy's case, multiply this by the fact that he was one of the very first naval officers to go underwater with said nuclear reactor. It ain't like today with upwards of a century of nuclear reactor technology that we've got under our wings and we've worked the bugs out. They were cutting edge technology that if something went wrong back then, you were just supposed to, you know. I'm making up as I go along. That requires a level of bravery you don't see in most people. But Jimmy was selected by Admiral Hyman. <laughs> Rick Over, the godfather of the nuclear submarine fleet, to oversee the design and operation of the first nuclear reactors on submarines. He was even slated to be the chief engineer. Yeah, a chief engineer on a submarine is kind of like Mr. Scott on the Enterprise. But in this case, it would have been with a southern accent. Mr. Scott, we need more power. Well, shit, Captain, I done give her all she got. I reckon we're perch your fuck if that their Spock feller can come up with one idea or another. I'm plumb out of them. On the USS Seawolf, one of the first operational nuclear submarines. By the way, one of our modern Seawolf-class submarines, a descendant of Jimmy's boat, is named for Jimmy Carter. You learned something now, didn't you? Alas, just as Jimmy was settling into his green and glowing life beneath the sea... His father died. Jimmy resigned his Navy commission and headed home to Plains to help manage the family business in 1953. It was, however, in Annapolis that Jimmy would meet the woman he would marry and is still with today, Rosalind Smith. These two lovebirds met in 1945 and were married in 1946, meaning if you do the math, these two people have been together through thick and thin, good times and bad, and Jimmy lusting at his heart for 76 years. Who does that? Jesus, I, I can't keep a relationship going for more than like a year. Well, maybe that's because you're an asshole. That could be the reason. But it doesn't change that being with someone for that long must get really, really boring unless the sex is really, really hot. Yeah. What I'm saying is, is I think Jimmy and Rosalind still fuck and fuck well. Just slowly because they're in their 90s and you can break a hip like that if you're not careful. Running the family peanut farm was challenging. It went through some tough financial times when Jimmy took over, but by 1959, it was pumping out peanuts by the bushel and the Carter family was looking to expand the horizon. That's when Jimmy began to dabble in politics. From the Carter biography at the University of Virginia's Miller Center, quote, quote, Hard work and effective management made the Carter farm prosperous by 1959. Jimmy Carter's involvement in local community increased as he began to serve on local boards for civic entities like hospitals and libraries. He also became a church deacon and a Sunday school teacher at the Plains Baptist Church. In 1955, he successfully ran for the office for the first time seat on a Sumter County Board of Education, eventually becoming its chairman. 
When a new seat in the Georgia State Senate opened up because of federally ordered reapportionment in 1962, Carter entered that race. Initially defeated in the Democratic primary, he was able to prove that his opponent's victory was based on widespread voter fraud. He appealed that result, and the judge threw out the fraudulent votes, and Carter was handed the election. Unquote. Jimmy Carter doesn't usually show up on the list of great civil rights leaders, but you know, for Central Georgia in the late 1950s, he was damn near a radical. Oh, that is overstating it a little. Okay, I may be overstating it a little. He, he did champion laws to make it easier for black folks to vote in Georgia. And when this little church in Plains voted on whether or not they should integrate, it was nearly unanimous against the idea of allowing black people to sit on a pew in their goddamn church. Of the three dissenting voters that said that black people maybe could come in their church because it was a goddamn church, two of them were Jimmy and Rosalind Carter. In 1966, when Jimmy decided to run for governor, he was considered far too liberal for Georgia which was just beginning to turn to the GOP in a backlash against the whole civil rights movement. He finished third in the Democratic primary. The guy who did win the 1966 nomination for the Democratic Party's governor race in Georgia, a dude by the name of Lester Maddox, a guy so conservative, he proudly refused to allow black people to enter a restaurant he owned and who distributed axe handles to white patrons as a symbol of resistance to desegregation required under the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Sounds like a great guy. The best. When he ran for governor again in 1970, Jimmy did what Democrats always have and always will do, run to the right. Again from his bio quote, he campaigned on a platform of calling for an end to busing as a means to overcome segregation in public schools. Carter thought that in order to win, he would have to capture white voters who were uneasy about integration. Consequently, he minimized appearances before African-American groups and sought the endorsement of several avowed segregationists, including Lester Maddox. Remember that name? The leading newspaper in the state, the Atlanta Constitution, refused to, to endorse him and described him as a, quote, ignorant, racist, backward, ultra-conservative, redneck, southern Georgia peanut farmer, unquote. The strategy worked, however, and with the support of rural farmers, born-again Christians, and segregationist voters, Carter forced a runoff election and won with 49% of the vote, unquote. Jimmy Carter won the Democratic primary and eventually the election, becoming the Georgia governor in 1970, and almost as soon as he settled into the governor's chair, he turned an eye towards the national stage. Touch ambitious, maybe. Jimmy liked to come across as this soft-spoken religious man, but he was ambitious as hell. Again from his bio, quote, He gained a deserved reputation as an arrogant governor, with a holier-than-thou attitude that isolated him from politicians who might otherwise have become his political allies, unquote. He was a lot like a young guy from Arkansas who would follow in his footsteps a few years later, except not as horny and not nearly as rapey as that future Southern governor who also became president. There are tons of things that Jimmy did in the run-up for his presidency that, frankly, don't look good in hindsight. He staked out centrist positions that appeals to those Democrats that today we would call economically anxious, meaning, of course, they didn't like that black folks were putting on airs and acting like they were as good as white people. You know racist. He even met with noted racist George Wallace, the governor of Alabama and perennial presidential contender and Klan wannabe, on how to keep Democrats from losing the racist vote when McGovern ran in 1972. Jimmy even cautioned the Democrats from making too much of this whole Watergate thing. Granted, maybe this was not the best idea. 
Now, we got to take a quick moment to diverge from the narrative to talk about the political climate in the 1970s. If you've been following along in our little interrupted series about the economic angst of the time and even nodding acquaintance with history of the era, you should know that America in the midst of the 1970s was, to put it mildly, a... Uh, we are in a shitstorm here. I mean, just a Billy Joel song level of dysfunction. Trusting government was at rock bottom lows, our sense of national purpose was shot, and Americans were buying rocks as pets. What people wanted was... Well, honestly, they didn't know what they wanted, but whatever, whatever it was, it had to be different than what we had, and what we had was Gerald Ford. You could have ran three kids in a trench coat against Gerald Ford and stood a decent chance of beating him. The Democrats put up 17 candidates for the nomination. The dark horse candidate amongst those 17 was a relatively unknown governor from Georgia whom his opponents mocked by saying, Jimmy who? Quoting from American Magazine, quote, and that summer, he decided to do the impossible, run for the presidency of the United States. The sum of his life experience up to then had been an officer in the United States Navy, a peanut farmer and a businessman, a state senator, a Sunday school teacher, and the governor of his home state of Georgia. He was the most virtually unknown of unknowns as far as presidential candidates went, yet he went about telling people something people never expected to hear from a presidential candidate, and particularly so in the aftermath of those scandal-scarred Watergate years. I'll never tell a lie. I'll never make a misleading statement. I'll never betray the confidence that any of you had in me. And I'll never avoid a controversial issue. And I want a government as good and as kind, as loving as the American people. He went from person to person, smiling, extended his hand, and said, my name is Jimmy Carter, and I'm running to be your president, unquote. By the time the primaries were over, Jimmy was the Democrat nominee. Jerry Ford was probably always going to be the presumptive Republican nominee, but he did face a brief challenge from a charismatic governor of a little state on the West Coast who came at him from the far, far right. Ronald Wilson Reagan? None other than Uncle Fashy. Ford faced off against Carter in the general election and lost. Jimmy brought home 297 electoral votes, just over 50% of the popular vote, to Ford's 241 electoral votes and 48% of the popular vote. It wasn't a landslide, but with Democrats firmly in control of both houses of Congress, Carter took the Oval Office with a lot of political capital to spend, a nation longing for sweeping chains and for some big ideas on how to change things. He was full of hope optimism and a drive to be a different kind of president he was a genuine outsider and he wasn't tied to the traditional power structures of washington dc a populist centrist who was dedicated to shaking stuff shaking up things inside the beltway and the movers and shakers inside the dc beltway took one look at jimmy carter and said no i'm sure of it i hate him we've talked over the past few weeks about jimmy carter the president his policies both good and bad but very little about Jimmy the person. Just who was this ambitious but pious man from Georgia? What made him tick? What kind of dude was he? Well, he was the first presidential candidate ever to set for an interview with Playboy magazine. Don't worry, he buys us only for the articles. See, the Carter campaign was walking this very fine line they wanted. They needed the conservative Democrat vote, and that meant playing up Jimmy's sincere evangelical beliefs. I mean, the man taught Sunday school, for fuck's sake, and he didn't even molest any of the kids. Praise Jesus. On the other hand, they wanted, they needed the liberal voters. 
the youth voters, the voters who had recently been boning one another on the grass at Woodstock. So they were busy giving interviews to all the liberal elite magazines, including to one Playboy magazine, which at the time had a sterling reputation for journalism, along with tastefully airbrushed crotch shots. Nice beaver. The interview was surprisingly candid, and Carter opened up a lot about his thoughts on run, running for president, and what that was like on a personal level. He spoke of his family, his faith, his personal failings in a way modern candidates would never do. He was even open about his discomfort with modern sexual mores. Speaking about homosexuality, the first candidate to actually speak on the issue in any sort of policy or public venue, and if his views were not woke by today's standards, they were pretty open by the standards of the mid-70s religious southerner. A lot of hate the sin, love the sinner stuff. Never fly today, but back then, seriously on the verge of blasphemy. It was in response to this question in the Playboy interview, as I'm quoting from an article rep reprinted on the UC San Bernardino History website, quote, Do you feel you've reassured people with this interview, people who are uneasy about your religious beliefs, who wonder if you're going to make a rigid, unbending president? Unquote. The answer Carter gave was long, nuanced and actually really good but it was the following line that caught national attention quote i try not to commit deliberate sin i recognize i'm going to do it anyhow because i'm human and i'm tempted and christ set some almost impossible standards for us christ said i tell you that anyone who looks upon women with lust in his heart has already committed adultery i've looked on a lot of women with lust I've committed adultery in my heart many times. This is something that God recognizes I will do, and, and I have done it, and God forgives me for it, unquote. In the context of the actual quote, Carter laid out how his faith is compartmentalized from his secular governance, kind of like Kennedy in the Catholic speech. And they tried very hard not to judge sinners in the context of his faith, and he didn't do it as a politician. It wasn't his place to measure others by the context of his faith. It was a good answer. But what came out of all that was that Jimmy... This dude is super horny. He wasn't super horny, at least for anyone but Rosalind, but it made for a great headline, and that candid admission of human nature cost him in the polls. That he did the interview at all caused the religious right, which was just becoming a thing to question his bona fides as a biteable thumper. And when he said right there in a smut magazine that he'd lusted in his heart, they knew that he wasn't a true Christian warrior. Trademark 1974. He was beaten up in the press and on stump speeches for weeks. Again, if anyone but Gerald Ford was running against him, it probably would have tanked his campaign. But it was Jerry. And it didn't. Jimmy was never really taken seriously as a president. Like I said, the D.C. establishment didn't like him. And to be honest, Jimmy didn't like the D.C. establishment. And as a part of the D.C. establishment, a major member of the Beltway insider class, both then and now, the media wasn't inclined to give Jimmy a break either. I mean, take the rabbit story. A rabbit?! as just a small example of the kind of news coverage that Jimmy Carter got when he was president. It was well into the Carter presidency, April of 1979, and Jimmy was back in Plains, spending some time away from the White House. As presidents are wont to do, he was tooling around on a pond on his land in a flat-bottom boat. I'm sure he was thinking presidential thoughts. When suddenly, there was a loud splash. And while the Secret Service obliviously watched for threats from afar, a lithe shape parted the waters of the small pond, heading straight towards Jimmy in his 
little boat. It was a beast of terrible proportions, all gnashing teeth and giant floppy ears hissing with fury. What in God's name is that? It was a rabbit, but there's no ordinary rabbit. Quoting from an American president's blog, quote, He was fishing from a canoe in a pond when he spotted the fateful rabbit swimming toward him. It was never precisely determined what the rabbit's problem was. Carter, always trying to look at things from the other guy's point of view, later speculated that it was fleeing a predator. Whatever the case, it was definitely a troubled rabbit. He was hissing, menacingly, its teeth flashing and nostrils flared and making straight for the president, a press account said. The Secret Service haven't been caught flat-footed. I'll grant you an amphibious rabbit assault is a tough thing to defend against. The president did what he could to protect himself. Initially, it was reported that he hit the rabbit with his paddle. Realizing this would not play well with the Rabbit Lovers Guild, Carter later clarified that he merely splashed water at the rabbit, which then swam off towards shore, unquote. Yet when Carter told his staff of this rabbit later, they didn't believe him because they thought, and this is true, that rabbits couldn't swim. That's how little respect Jimmy got, even from his own fucking staff. And the press certainly didn't believe him. The Washington Post headline read, quote, Buddy goes bugs, rabbit attacks president, unquote. They even featured a mocked up poster from the movie Jaws featuring a rabbit. What kind of lousy hackish writer uses a Jaws pun in a situation like this? It wasn't until the Reagan administration that a photo actually featuring the brutal incident was released. A Car uh, Jimmy Carter's press secretary, Jody Powell, wrote in a book in the 1980s, quote, Upon closer inspection, the animal turned out to be a rabbit. Not one of your cutesy Easter bunny type rabbits, but one of those big splay footed things that we call swap rabbits when I was growing up. The animal was clearly in distress, perhaps berserk. The president confessed he had limited experience with enraged rabbits. He was unable to reach a definite conclusion about its state of mind. What was obvious, however, was that this large, wet animal making strange hissing noises and gnashing its teeth was intent on climbing into the presidential boat, unquote. How did Jimmy avert this deadly attack? By the photos, he splashed his oar at it, and the swamp rabbit swam away. The story, which again, no one at first even believed, and presumably had the White House staff calling rabbit experts to determine whether or not rabbits could actually swim, was a thing for at least two weeks in 1979. The public had a shitty impression of Jimmy Carter because DC didn't like Jimmy Carter. And he earned some of that because Jimmy was notoriously shitty to Congress. He insulted them. He didn't take their phone calls. He belittled them in speeches and generally treated Congress like a pack of spoiled whining children. Which, you know, when you think of it. Yeah, that's totally fair. In return, Congress didn't do much of anything to help Carter's initiative get passed. They blocked him on key elements of his domestic policy, stalled his political appointees, and didn't invite him to the Capitol Hill Christmas parties or their black magic sex orgies. That was particularly hurtful. Jimmy threatened to veto legislation. They said, go ahead. We got the votes to overturn your veto. And in general, nothing really got done legislators for four years because of this pissing match. At the same time, we've forgotten a lot of what Jimmy actually did get done. His very first act as president was an executive order to pardon anyone who dodged the draft during the Vietnam War. 
It was controversial. It was a campaign promise. It pissed off a lot of people on both sides of the aisle. But Carter rightfully believed that it was necessary if we were ever going to put Vietnam fully behind us so that we could finally get over Macho Grande. Over Macho Grande? No, I don't think I'll ever get over Macho Grande. He signed the second Strategic Arms Limitations Treaty with the Soviet Union, and that finally implemented some real limits on nuclear weapons research and deployment. He negotiated the return of the Panama Canal and did 150 years of American colonialism in Panama while ensuring the most valuable waterway in the Western Hemisphere remained open to the U.S. and the world. He provided stability during the Three Mile Island nuclear incident, going personally to the plant to demonstrate that it was safe and calming the panicked residents of the area. He oversaw the EPA cleanup of the Love Canal, a massive environmental disaster. He deregulated the airlines, allowing for a massive expansion in air travel domestically and internationally. He took a run at universal health care with Ted Kennedy, getting it through the Senate, only to have it die in the House, the graveyard of presidential health care plans. He formulated the U.S. response to the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, which admittedly didn't turn out so great in the long run, but it kept us out of a stupid war in Afghanistan for at least 25 years, even if it did hurt the feelings of Olympic athletes. He even brokered a peace deal between Egypt and Israel, ending the cycle of war between Israel and the Arab states surrounding her. At least officially, nation speaking. There was still a lot of problem with people who were angry about that, and they just didn't have the overt backing of states. The Camp David Accords were fucking historic, and they're still in place, even after the two leaders, one from Israel and one from Egypt, paid with their lives by assassination for that peace deal. Camp David alone should have gotten Carter a Nobel Peace Prize, but it was the economy and Iran that everyone remembers. It's hard to make the argument that Jimmy Carter was one of the best presidents ever. He was flawed in all the ways that make for bad presidents and good human beings. He was too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals, and too Southern to be taken seriously by the rest of the country. I don't have a chip on my shoulder about that Southern thing at all. I mean, I don't even consider myself Southern anymore. But y'all got to admit that you think if, if we talk like this, you kind of don't really respect us very much, now does you? Jimmy Carter was dealt a shitty hand of cards. Not a Lincoln, Obama, or even Biden shitty hand of cards, but still, it was no better than a pair of deuces country was in a malaise. Iran was a problem that any president would have stumbled through, and the economy was in the mass, midst of a massive shift that was just beginning to settle out when he was leaving office. He fundamentally believed that America needed big changes to confront a changing world. But America doesn't do changes, big or small, until it is forced kicking and screaming into doing something and whatever that thing that we finally get to when we get drug kicking and screaming is almost universally the wrong thing. See Ronald Reagan. I believe Jimmy Carter was an honest man who really did believe that America could do better, could be better, that we could make better policies that with a little patience see us through the economic problems and the foreign affairs debacles that, affect, that affected us in the 1970s. Unfortunately for Jimmy, patience is a more finite resource than anything else on earth, including common sense. Americans don't have it for ra rabbit splashing, heart lusting, centrist Democrats with a funny accent and a brother people like more than they liked him. He did the hard things that needed to be done. 
and at the same time, screwed up easy compromises that would have made the hard things just a little less hard. It made him a one-term president and set the stage for a vicious little quasi-fascist glad-handing piece of shit whose sole purpose of political life was to undo as much of the Roosevelt Revolution as humanly possible and set the stage for a century of discord and possibly the destruction of our democratic system of government, which I gotta say is the shittiest legacy that Jimmy Carter has left us. But you know what? At least we got Billy Carter out of it. And not unlike Jimmy's mom, I always did love Billy best. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. That is it for our show this week. I know it was a long show, but there's a lot more to Jimmy Carter than a one-term president. There's a guy who oversaw free and fair elections around the world and is still building houses for poor people at 94. What are you doing, George Bush? Still making those shitty paintings? This also wraps up our little 70s political mini-series, and that means we are heading back to pop culture for next week. So get your mom's credit card, ask your dad for the car keys, because we are... We're going to the mall. Oh, the mall. Back when America was pure and neon pink. Speaking of things that we all thought were a big deal but later turned out to be disappointments, rate and review the show wherever you get your pods. It will help others find us and be just as disappointed as you feel, felt when you heard us for the first time. Support us at patreon.com slash what the hell podcast so we can afford to buy that black light poster at Spencer's Gifts and do all the things that Jeremy tells you to in the closer because he's over chilling at Orange Julius and thinks he might go over to Walden Books to see if there's any new comics in yet. So we kind of need a few bucks. So for me, Dave, Jimmy's in the White House. His glory is unfurled. Bledsoe producer... God's in heaven, all is right with the world. What the devil is going on? Gavin and all the fictional peanut farmers on this show, we want to say our national nightmare has passed because Nixon and Ford are out on their... Well, let's just say that word was a little risque for a country song in 1976. And we'll see you all next week. Thinking stars Dave Bledsoe and features Gavin St. James and several fictional minions. 
The show is produced by Kimberly Steele and a part of the Seltzer Kings Podcast Network. You can find more information on the show on their website, whatthehellpodcast.com, or on Twitter at thehell underscore podcast, or on Facebook as What The Hell Podcast. Thanks for listening. I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow. You know, I never did like peanuts.